If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. One of his most powerful critics was Lord Byron. Lord Byron, for various reasons, didn't like West at all. And he described him as Britain's best painter and Europe's worst. That was Lloyd Grossman discussing the Georgian artist Benjamin West. The only sort of light at the end of the teaching tunnel for all of them was the idea that they could, while they were teaching, be writing and perhaps one day... um, support themselves through writing, which which they did manage to do. And that was Claire Harmon talking about the Brontes. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of October 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Lloyd Grossman. Lloyd is well known as a TV presenter and for his work in the food industry. But he's also a historian and has just written a biography of the 18th century painter Benjamin West, a key figure in the Georgian art world. I paid a visit to Lloyd at his London offices to find out more about a man who had a profound impact on the British cultural scene. So who was Benjamin West and where had he come from? Benjamin West was one of the most extraordinary figures of the 18th century. He was born on the edge of the frontier in Pennsylvania in 1738. And 
He rose to a position where by the time of his death in 1820, he was the most famous artist in the English-speaking world, second president of the Royal Academy, and also celebrated in Germany and France, you know, artist of great international stature. It's, it's almost a story that sounds as if it belongs to fiction rather than fact, you know, from humble beginnings to being the friend of George III, and the confidant of many of the most powerful and important people in Britain in the early 19th century. So he's, he's born in America, but he comes to Britain fairly early on in his career, is that, is that fair to say? He comes to Europe as a very young man and as almost the first American to go through that cultural rite of passage known as the Grand Tour. So when he's in his early 20s, some very rich patrons in Pennsylvania decide that he should be sent to Italy. And of course, going to Italy was a major part of the education, particularly of British grandees, and to a lesser extent of Americans who aspired to that, because it was felt that Italy was the source of Western civilization. Rome was culturally the most famous and potent city in the world. And generally, people from the elite believed that a visit to Italy was indispensable to confront the great art of the ancient world and the art of the Renaissance in person was an indispensable part of the process of um, finishing someone who was going to be part of the ruling class. And West was one of the very first Americans to, to take part in this and was certainly the first American artist to go to Italy to confront great works of art face to face. So where had he learned to paint them? Because he, he obviously hadn't been taught originally in Europe. Was there much of a tradition of painting at this point in the American colonies? There wasn't a tradition of painting in the American colonies. There were quite a few itinerant artists who came from Europe to the richer parts of the colonies. I mean, by the time that West was a young man, in the 1740s, 1750s, Philadelphia which was the closest big city to him, was quite a significant metropolis. I mean, it, it was the most significant English-speaking colony in the New World, and probably the richest. So there was a demand principally for portraits, because having your portrait commission was regarded, you know, as a really big sign of, of, of success. And to that extent, the people in Philadelphia were copying the behavior of the aristocracy back home in England. So there was a demand for portrait painting and itinerant English artists were attracted to the colonies to fulfill this demand. West was largely self-taught, but because he had a great deal of natural aptitude, he quickly attracted the attention of these itinerant artists and therefore got a limited amount of professional training from them. And so what brings him public attention when he does finally come to Britain? What gets him such an elevated status that he can work for George III. West was, was a very, very attractive person. And quite often, and, and I found this slightly puzzling, quite often, you know, the history of art, the discipline of art history, likes to concentrate on what they call the formal qualities of pictures, namely the picture itself, what happens inside the frame. How well is it painted? How interesting is the composition? And so on. But there are a lot of extraneous factors that are hugely important. West was very good looking. He was a very nice person to be with. He was socially very adept. All those sorts of things help artists to be successful. I think it's very naive to believe that the only thing that matters in terms of success is whether an artist is a great technical artist or not. Yeah, that is important. But it's also important that they are people who have skill at public relations, at getting to know the right people. And wherever West went, from the time he was a young man, you know, he went from a very small town to a bigger one to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, then to a bigger one to Philadelphia, then to, to Rome, and then from Rome to London. And wherever he went, he was always taken under the wing of some of the most important people there. That is one of the keys to his success. People liked him and they wanted to help him. So does he end up mixing with the leading British artists of the day then? Yes, he suddenly, you know, from Mr. Nobody from Nowhere, 
suddenly, by the time of the foundation of the Royal Academy in 1768, he's one of the small delegation of artists, including Joshua Reynolds, the biggest name in the land, he's one of the small delegation of artists who goes to George III with the petition asking for the establishment of the Royal Academy. So his rise, his trajectory is very, very steep, really steep. And he's so successful that he, of course, arouses a great deal of animosity. And the animosity uh, against him has always bedeviled his critical reputation. So even now, that kind of animosity from Georgian times is still hampering him in some way? It has lessened over the last 30 to 40 years, but certainly during the 19th century and in the early 20th century, he faced a lot of very, very severe criticism. I mean, the wonderful, the Victorian critic Walter Thornbury called him the monarch of mediocrity. And um, one of his most powerful critics was Lord Byron. Lord Byron, for various reasons, didn't like West at all. And he described him as um, Britain's best painter and Europe's worst. So, so West had a lot, of, a lot of critical artillery thrown at him, and it's taken quite a long time for more considered judgment of his work to, to, to be accepted. And I believe that West had a specific role as a history painter for George III. What, what does that entail? Well, his, his title as history painter to the king is um, an honorific... But it also came with a certain fee. I mean, he was paid, I think, about a thousand pounds a year to be history painted to the king, which which was a considerable amount of money. So it brought some money, some social cachet, and a certain number of, of, of commissions. What one's got to remember is that the world of art in the 18th century was incredibly hierarchical. History painting which is not the painting of contemporary events, but is the painting of, of subjects from the Bible, mythology, and ancient history. History painting was regarded as the most rarefied, highbrow, desirable type of art. So to excel as a history painter was something that every artist aspired to. There was one drawback though, which was it hardly paid. People didn't want, the British didn't want to buy history paintings. They wanted to look at them. They wanted to buy portraits. And most 18th century artists were constantly moaning about the fact that while they aspired to be history painters, they were stuck in the drudge work of painting portraits. West, thanks to his patronage from George III, was one of the very, very, very few artists who was able to concentrate mostly on grand history painting. And I don't know what, I suppose this may not actually qualify as one of his history paintings, but the painting for which he's best known of now, the, the death of General Wolfe, what is it about that painting that made it so influential and so important? It's one of the most revolutionary paintings of the 18th century, which is almost hard to appreciate now because it just looks, to us, it looks rather conventional. Because we're used to reportage, we're used to seeing photographs and paintings and engravings and prints of contemporary events. But it was absolutely revolutionary in the context of the 18th century for a few reasons. Um, number one, it broke the convention that the most heroic events should be portrayed as if they took part in the dim and distant past. And that great heroes should be portrayed wearing togas, for example. Because it was thought that contemporary dress was both very sort of short-lived and rather demeaning. And it's well known that when, when it was first mentioned to George III that West was going to paint the death of General Wolfe in contemporary dress, George III said, it was thought very ridiculous to exhibit heroes in coats, breeches, and cocked hats. Namely, people expected heroes to be portrayed in a timeless way. So West broke the mold by doing a very, very grand, grand painting of a contemporary event in contemporary clothes. And this was part of a big shift in attitude about realizing the value of what was contemporary. And to me, this is part of the whole development of a modern attitude. You know, what does it mean to be modern? You know, what is being modern? 
And, and I love the phrase of the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who says that, that modern, being modern is about heroizing the present, namely thinking that the present is as valuable and as heroic and as epic as anything that happened in the past. And this was a huge intellectual shift that happened in the 18th century. People suddenly began to think, actually, we don't have to spend our lives looking over our shoulders, being nostalgic about how great the Romans and the Greeks were. We're really good. We are valuable. We are worthy of epic. And to me, that's the most important thing about the death of Wolf. It is a painting that says what's happening now has epic qualities. And what you said about George III, suggests that not everybody at the time appreciated this new approach to painting. So when Wessett first painted his painting, what kind of reception did it receive? Before the painting was exhibited to the public, there was quite a lot of uh, theoretical objection to it. I mean, for example, uh, Joshua Reynolds, who was president of the Royal Academy, really warned West not to do it. And his words were something like that such innovations would cause, and I think his phrase was repulse or ridicule, So he was saying to West, please don't do it. Don't do it. And West was absolutely committed. And part of this was his American pragmatism. He was very committed to painting the event in a contemporary fashion. And it was unveiled at the exhibition of the Royal Academy in 1771. And it became a huge popular success. I mean, a massive popular success. Mm. It was the painting of the exhibition. It was the painting that everyone talked about. It fitted in with the zeitgeist, I guess, in that, at that time. Yeah, it, West was very good at being just ahead of the curve. Before he developed this style of contemporary history painting, he was also at the forefront of the previous movement in painting, which was international neoclassicism. And towards the end of his life, he became a major figure in the development of the romantic style of painting. West got the zeitgeist unbelievably well. And as an art historian said to me, he had very sensitive antennae. You know, West... West was not terribly intellectual, he was not very articulate, but he knew what was going on. He had a great sense of what people wanted. And with the death of Wolfe, gosh, he really fulfilled a popular demand. Do we know how he actually researched this painting? Did he actually try and find out exactly what had happened when Wolfe was killed? Well, he certainly knew one of the principals, General Monckton, because he had painted Monckton a few years previously as a portrait. The fascinating thing about the death of Wolf is that whilst it appears to be a work of reportage, it is very literally, it is highly inaccurate. Mm. Wolf did not die surrounded by all his adoring officers. He died very quickly in an obscure part of the battlefield. At least one or two of the participants in the picture weren't even in North America at the time. The picture features very prominently a Native American in the foreground. There were no Native Americans at the Battle of Quebec. But what West was doing, and this is quite a a difficult concept to get our heads around, is that he, he was looking for a deeper kind of truth. The 18th century was less obsessed with literal truth and more obsessed with a sort of inner truth. You know, they didn't care so much about the details of what actually happened on the day but they wanted a kind of core of truth, truth as it should have been. So for example, West very prominently put a North American Indian in the foreground because that would immediately convey to viewers, hey, this is an event that took place far away in North America. And it also added a hint of the wilderness and exoticism, which was very appealing. It helped to draw people into the picture. So literal truth wasn't really terribly important to the 18th century. And how much did this painting actually do for Wolfe's own posthumous reputation? Wolfe's posthumous reputation was still riding very high, even in 1771. He died in 1759. Even in 1771, he was one of the great imperial icons because he was an imperial martyr. And almost from the time of his death, I mean, within weeks of his death, people were writing poetry about him. 
and he was being talked about almost in Christ-like terms. You know, people talked about Britannia mourning the loss of her son, just like the Virgin Mary and, and Jesus. So Wolf was a superstar. His posthumous reputation was riding high. This painting both capitalized on his posthumous reputation and helped to re reinforce it. And there was one critic who said that um, West was always going around talking about Wolf, my Wolf, as if West had made Wolf's reputation and not the other way around. So it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, how much, how much of a push did Wolf give to West's fame? How much did West's painting contribute to Wolf's enduring fame? It's an interesting conundrum. Yeah. Do you see any parallels perhaps with like the modern situation where you get a film of a famous historical event that for many people becomes a reality? Yes. Do you think this painting in some way did the same thing for say, the general public? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there is a real line of succession between the death of Wolf and firstly many subsequent paintings, you know, like Picasso's famous Guernica mm -hmm. painting and the modern sort of biopic feature film, which is framing contemporary or near contemporary figures in a kind of heroic historical mold. Mm. So, you know, this is all part of the mechanism of fame and celebrity and heroism, which, you know, we're, we're surrounded by now. And in the article that you've written for us, you talk about this Georgian popular history boom. How does that connect to um, West's painting of Wolf? Well, part of the success of the death of Wolf was to do with the growth of historical consciousness in the 18th century and the popularization of history. You know, prior to the 18th century, history was mostly a pretty dull chronicle of ruling dynasties and kings and queens and battles and you know it was and it was mostly aimed at an elite audience beginning in the 18th century just before the first half of the 18th century a new type of history writing philosophical history writing pioneered by Voltaire in France and David Hume in in Britain suddenly began to look at history as a wider, more popular thing. You know, history was not just about kings and queens and generals. History was about a much wider range of people. And history became about the history of society. So there was this growing demand, you know, fueled by the growth of the middle class, rising literacy, etc., etc., etc. There was a huge popular demand for a new type of history, which was satisfied by a new school of history writers, and also with West by a new school of history painters. From your own point of view, what's your favourite um, Benjamin West painting? My favourite Benjamin West painting has to be The Death of Wolf, because it's, it's one that I've been familiar with since childhood. But I think his whole body of work is so big, I mean, I think there are 600 pictures or something like that, that amongst them, you know, like any of the prolific 18th century artists, yeah, there is a lot of dross in there, but mm -hmm. gosh, there are some real gems which deserve to be rediscovered. And do you think he ranks with the likes of, say, Gainsborough, Reynolds, Hogarth, some of the names that perhaps get a bit more credibility these days? I think in many ways he does. He did something very different. I mean, he wasn't as intellectual a person as Reynolds. He probably wasn't as easy and graceful a person as Gainsborough. He certainly wasn't as witty a person as Hogarth. But he brings a, he brings a commitment to the here and now, which is a very important component of 18th century history. And I think he, he deserves to be celebrated for that. And is his work for the Royal Academy, do you think that's well enough known? Because he's obviously the president of that. He was, but he was a very long-term president of the Royal Academy. And I think as we approach the 250th anniversary of the founding of the Royal Academy, we will see more attention paid to, to West's work as a sort of cultural leader and a cultural inspiration. Do you feel a kind of kinship with him as a transatlantic person, I guess, yourself, navigating between the, the North American and the European worlds? Yeah, I, th I think that uh, West's uh, transatlanticism is quite an important part of his character. And of course, I, I, that resonates with me. Although I would say probably at the time that he came over here, remember when he, when he came over here, and the, this was you know, before the American Revolution, 
Americans were regarded as kind of a, a variety of English person. They weren't really, they didn't have a separate national identity. So it, in many ways, West kind of exemplifies this, this amazing period in which there was a more seamless relationship, I think, between the East Coast of the United States and, and Britain. But certainly, as an American who, who came to, to Britain and settled here and contributed to the country, yeah, I do feel a kinship with him. Did things change with him after the, the colonies became independent? Was he viewed then differently in Britain? The issue of West's Americanism versus his Britishness and whether he was an American patriot or not is quite a thorny one. Certainly, he, he, was, not, he was not terribly political. And even in his letters home, back to the state, he very rarely mentions the American Revolution, other than in very oblique terms. He occasionally raised the question of returning to the United States, but that was only when he thought things were not doing very well over here. Certainly many people thought that he was kind of a closet Republican, and this was fueled when he made a probably a slightly ill-advised visit to France in 1803 and became a little bit too cozy with Napoleon. And so he was distrusted by some at the court of George III, but whether he really harbored Republican sympathies or not is something we need to do more work on. That was Lloyd Grossman. Lloyd's book, Benjamin West and the Struggle to be Modern, is published in the UK today, the 8th of October, by Merrill. In the US, it will be published next week, also by Merrill. And if you'd like to hear Lloyd speak in person, then you can do so at our History Weekend event, which runs from the 15th to 18th of October in Malmesbury, Wiltshire. There are still a few tickets available for Lloyd's and many other talks, and you can purchase them as well as find out more information at historyweekend.com. And I should mention that we have a late addition to this year's programme, who is one of Britain's best-known historians and broadcasters, Simon Sharma. Simon will be talking about his new book and TV series on British art through the ages, on Sunday the 18th of October. Tickets are selling fast, but there are still some left, so if you'd like to come to that talk, make sure you visit historyweekend.com as soon as you can. And back to Lloyd Grossman, he has also written an article on the Georgian history boom in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Anglo-Saxons, Second World War spies, the Celts, and the Royal Navy's role in the American Revolution. You can get hold of our November issue now in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com history extra. Just go to Indeed.com history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. 
Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. A medieval mass grave containing around 50 skeletons has been discovered in the West Midlands. Shallow graves about half a metre deep were unearthed at what was once a medieval pilgrimage site around Lichfield Cathedral in Staffordshire, where an almshouse once stood. The almshouse was used by pilgrims worshipping the tomb of the 7th century St Chad of Mercia. The bodies were discovered laid on their backs in rows covered in dirt. Archaeology Warwickshire said it had expected to uncover graves on the site, but was surprised by the, quote, volume and quantity of what was found. In other news, a secret staircase to the roof of the gatehouse at Battle Abbey is to open to the public for the first time, giving visitors an unparalleled view of the site of the 1066 Battle of Hastings. To mark next year's 950th anniversary of the clash, the crumbling 14th century stone staircase is to be restored and a new platform installed over the roof. Visitors will have an unrivaled view of the scene of William the Conqueror's victory. According to English Heritage curator Roy Porter, it is, quote, almost the only spot from which you can make any sense of the accounts of the battle. The room had been used as office space since English Heritage took over the site in the 1980s. The secret staircase to the roof of the gatehouse was discovered behind panelling in an arched cupboard in the staff room. The gatehouse is today home to the Museum of Monastic Life, where visitors can learn about the monks who once lived at Battle Abbey. Meanwhile, the ghost of Henry VIII has reportedly been spotted by members of the Welsh rugby squad at a hotel near their base in Twickenham. A number of players claim to have spotted the spectre of the Tudor monarch at Oatlands Park Hotel in Weybridge, which was built in the 19th century on the site of a 16th-century palace that Henry VIII constructed for his new queen, Anne of Cleves. Anne of Cleves probably never lived at the palace during the short time she was Henry's wife, but it is believed that Henry secretly married his next queen, Catherine Howard, in the palace chapel. The palace was also popular with Henry VIII's daughter, Elizabeth I, who used it as a hunting lodge. The Welsh rugby team is staying at the Oatlands Park Hotel in the run-up to their Rugby World Cup meeting with Australia. The hotel reportedly has a history of guests complaining of extreme temperature changes and a number claim to have spotted a so-called grey lady in various rooms. Each month in the magazine, we run an article called History Explorer, where we visit a location of historical importance in the United Kingdom. For this month's edition, we've turned our attention to West Yorkshire, home to the Bronte sisters and an area that inspired some of their celebrated Victorian novels. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, headed up to Bronte country in the company of Charlotte Bronte's latest biographer, Claire Harmon. So Claire, we're sitting um, in what is now sort of known as the back garden of the Parsonage um, Museum. Um, You've recently written a biography of Charlotte Bronte. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably firstly, why why did you choose Charlotte out of all the um, the sisters to to focus on for your for your book? Well, although the Bronte family are of course thought of as a unit, I mean, one of the most interesting and prolific literary families ever, certainly in English literature. I mean, they're the ones that really stand out. Each individual member of, of that family was quite different. I mean, they loved to be with each other. They longed to be home. They were not very sociable as a group. But then within their own little group, they were profoundly individualistic people and writers. And Charlotte Bronte's works are very different from those of her sisters, although, of course, they're within the same kind of range of experience. And, Mm. I mean, Anne Bronte's novel, Agnes Grey, is extremely like Jane Eyre. It was written before Jane Eyre. Um, But... You know, Charlotte's got a very individual take and her books are my favourites amongst the Bronte sisters' books. 
Okay, so, um, so going back to the very beginnings, um, when do they actually they come to Haworth? When do they, you know, start living in, in this house? Well, they came here in 1820 from a, a parish called Thornton, which is only a few miles away. It's mm. just, but it's nowhere near as high up on the moors as Haworth. And Haworth has a peculiar sort of character, partly from its situation and partly from just local weirdness. <laughs> um, but the Brontes came here really because it was a promotion for Reverend Bronte, but the children were all very small. Yeah. Uh, he had six children at that date. Um, and in fact, his youngest child, Anne, had just been born. So they were, um, you know, sort of gaggle of small children and his wife. Um, and it was a big enough house for them to live in. They'd been in rather small accommodation in Thornton. But Patrick Bronte, the father, was very happy in Thornton. Mm. And it was the place where he had more friends. And really, when they came to Haworth, their sort of social isolation became more intensified because um, there were various you know, contentions with the nonconformists and the dissenters and, and even the Methodists. And um, Patrick Bronte felt a bit embattled as the established church minister. Um, And, you know, the house people were a bit unwelcoming, I'd say. Uh, He was an Irishman, um, and uh, he was a bit odd. (laughs) And then his wife died the next year, so there was no time in which Mrs Bronte was able to sort of make the family look more normal or to Mm. integrate with the parish. So, I mean, they were bereaved horribly very soon after arriving in Haworth, and and really they just became more of a sort of sealed-off unit in the parsonage which is, as you can see, physically isolated from the village. Yeah. Um, you know, it's stuck on the, it's between the moor and, and the village. And what stands between it and the church is a load of graves. So you know, they, they moved here in 1820, looked out of their windows, and what do they see? A heck of a lot of dead people, and yeah. then the church and then the village beyond it. Yeah, and like you say, um, you know, they were bereaved very, very early in life, and, and two, the two elder sisters also died quite young yes. um, in life, didn't they? And but Patrick himself, he was a writer, wasn't he? Um, or you he, could say so. <laughs> he, wrote, <laughs> he wrote. He published. <laughs> he yeah, published, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, do you think that's kind of where their early inspiration um, sort of for writing came from? Very probably, because he, he had, um, you know, he had a little bit of talent, but he had a massive ambition to be uh, published and to, be, and to be sort of loved, really, as a writer. I think he wanted his verses to uh, really be effective, and they were moralising verses mostly. But he also had a very strong romantic streak. And I think his personal ambition, frustrated though it was, meant that he was very sympathetic to those traits in his children. So he, uh, you know, he was not the usual Victorian paterfamilias at all. Yeah. Um, you know, so many Victorian... Uh, women writers had fathers who were batting them back, but actually the Bronte's father, although he was very strange, he was an eccentric man, um, uh, he was not uh, at all, he didn't keep them away from books, he he didn't discourage them from reading Byron. I mean, Byron was a scandalous writer to, to allow your children to read. And certainly one of the books in his library that they would have, well, several of the books were written by him, these little terrible cottage poems <laughs> and winter thoughts. I mean, I'm saying they're terrible. That seems very rude, but actually they are pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so they were sort of grown up seeing seeing their, their father in yeah. print, though. Yes, um, yes. And, and the fact that he had, I mean, he'd had them privately printed. Mm. And that in itself, I mean, the fact that they were rather beautiful little editions, you know, with the, one of them's got a very nice frontispiece and, and they're small and the children obviously like the look of them. And yeah. then when they started making their own, the children made their own um, tiny books, which got tinier and tinier. I mean, huh. These minuscule books, which were really started off as toys, basically for their for their yeah. toy soldiers. But they, you know, that became something that looked awfully like Patrick Bronte's works, really. And when when do we know um, that children started their own writing? Was it was that from that was from early childhood? Yes, already well, almost as soon as they could write, they were making little books and making little magazines for mm. their for Branwell's toy soldiers, which is it's so charming. But then it also became immensely complicated and sophisticated you know rather than it just stopping at the level of let's play with the toy soldiers and they can have some literature Mm. um it the content of the literature really became very very important because the soldiers themselves were acting out roles in an imaginary world that was sort of boundlessly uh inventive Uh, it it was particularly charlotte and branwell the two older remaining children after after Mariah and Elizabeth had died, as you say. Um, 
you know, aged about sort of 10 and 9, they were leading the two younger children, Emily and Anne, along with these imaginative games. And, and you know, they had a whole, I mean, Branwell drew maps for it. They had a kind of a massive geography of it. They each had their own land and then they got, they conquered more lands. It was sort of based around um, African and vaguely Mediterranean countries that they'd read about in periodicals of the yeah. day. And, uh, they, you know, they peopled it with, with some of the famous statesmen of the time and <laughs> Charlotte's um, huge hero was the Duke of Wellington, so he kind of appears in all sorts of weird, like, superhero forms. He's like Duke of Wellington mixed with, you know, Superman, basically. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the stories that emerged from that were just so uh, complex and, and gripping. And that's the, they, they lived in that world, really. Mm. They, they were physically in this parsonage here, but they were um, in, their, in their mental life uh, collaborating in this very, very engrossing and sustaining private yeah. fantasy. Do you think that um, the, the death of their mother obviously would have had a huge impact on them? Do you think it maybe encouraged, encouraged this sort of fantasy world even, even more, do you think, a sort of a solace from you know, what was happening in the, in the real world? Yes, I mean, I, I should think so, because it must have been appalling. I mean, losing their mother in 1821 and then the two older sisters... Um, who were beloved, and, and Mariah, the eldest sister, who was only 12 when she, or perhaps 11 when she died, um, she had been a little mother, you know, she'd taken over the sort of maternal role. And then to lose her mm. in, in 1825 was, you know, just appalling. I think yeah. that, then Charlotte ended up being the eldest child, and she'd been in the middle of the family before, and, you know, she had no um, sort of natural maternal leadership qualities of that kind. She didn't she didn't feel at all at home in that. And I think certainly, you know, they were escaping from all sorts of things in, yeah. in this um, fantasy world. And also part of, part of the total boredom of life, you know, when you don't have very much yeah. apart from each other. Uh, and also they didn't have contact much with the village children, so they were really at home. So were they educated here? Um, for the most part, they were. Branwell was almost entirely, well, he was entirely educated at home, mm. being the boy and his father had been a teacher as a young man, so you know it was quite a, a natural step to tutor his son at home because he was Patrick Bronte was as good as any other tutor would have mm. been. Um, the girls, because um, their aunt had come to live with them after the mother died, so Aunt Branwell was this rather rather frosty but um, good-natured aunt, um, and she did teach the girls a bit, but again, she wasn't really qualified to do much for them. And the girls, it was clear from an early age, they were going to have to earn a living when they grew up. And the only living that they could really plausibly attempt to earn would be as a teacher or a governess right. for a middle-class girl. That was really, there wasn't really much else one could do that was respectable um, and would just about sustain life. It's interesting that they didn't, they weren't encouraged to think of getting married as a way was, out of that I was problem. wondering yeah. that, actually, yeah. yes, whether they whether that was a that was an yeah. option. Because from think. the start, I mean, the family seemed to think, OK, you know, everybody's got to be prepared to support themselves. Mm. Uh, so it's a, it's a very sort of honourable way to be thinking and thinking as a group like that too, not thinking, oh, we've got a pretty one, she'll get married. You know, mm. we've, got a, we've got one who's, who's a bit of an egghead and she'll, you know, she'll become a teacher. They, they were all treated in the same way. And the girls, um, well, Charlotte had been at school when her sisters, her elder sisters died. Um, and she didn't stay there much longer after their, after their deaths. Uh, so she and Emily went to school in Lancashire briefly. Mm. Then they both went to school in um, nearer to home in uh, Murfield in uh, South Yorkshire, well, southwest Yorkshire. And uh, Anne went there too. But they all had very brief school careers because of the expense of it. Yeah. So Charlotte was really only at school for about 18 months as a teenager and she rattled through everything that was available to be learnt, yeah. uh, got all the prizes and um, then prepared herself to disgorge that knowledge onto some other poor kid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how did they feel about the fact that they would, they would need to earn their own living and, and you know, mm. Charlotte would have to become a governess? You know, how, did they, how, did, how did that sort of Well, feel? I think they were fatalistic about it. I don't think any of them was... Um, you know, egotistical enough to think that they were an exception to that fact of life, but they hated the idea of going out into the world and having to be away, apart from each other, you know, being mm. with strangers, which they, they all feared and, and, and despised, and having to teach 
you know, children, some of them, well, none of them like children at all. <laughs> Just were the least kind of cuddly teachers you can yeah. imagine. So, you know, Charlotte was obviously a terrible teacher. She resented every minute of having to be in a classroom with with girls and, um, and you know, despised their stupidity and, and all the rest of it. But um, she also definitely knew that she was going to have to earn money. And the way that they, the only sort of light at the end of the, teaching tunnel for all of them was the idea that they could while they were teaching be writing and perhaps one day um support themselves through writing which which they did manage to do but only right at the end of their Mm. lives really so how long were they actually teaching for working for um well charlotte had they, they all had kind of goes at it and then they seemed to have come to a sort of decision that they would act as a group and and they wouldn't you know if one of the other of them was out working Mm. it would allow some of the others to come home and have some time off and Mm. the only one of the siblings who was any good at keeping hold of a job was Anne the youngest who was by far the most uh, sort of uh, well she just had a, a very fatalistic streak and I think she she suffered a lot when she was being a governess but she just felt she had to really stick at it Emily really couldn't stand it at all she had just a few weeks or months teaching at Law Hill in Halifax absolutely loathed it um, and Charlotte taught at Row Head which she she'd been there as a girl and been actually quite a happy school girl there mm. but she hated being a teacher there um, and then she taught in Brussels for about a year, and again, was it was a very perturbing year for her. So, you know, they had these... Charlotte never really was teaching anywhere for more than about a year. Mm. And so she'd kind of go off, have a breakdown, come home again, yeah. you know, get her strength back up again, feel guilty, go out and do another job and come home. So, But it, it was not something that she was going to knuckle under and, no. and, and give herself over to. I mean, it sounds, you know, as... It sounds like they were quite lonely then when they were apart. They sort of worked better as a as a unit. Yeah, um, terribly that... lonely. I mean, really yeah. homesick. I mean, they just didn't, really didn't function. It's it's strange. I mean, very um, uh, very peculiar. I mean, Charlotte really became you know hypersensitive and very agitated. And Emily really could. Emily sort of faded. I mean, physically, you know, weakened. Um, it was a it was a profound neurosis really about mm. not being at home and since she was home she was absolutely fine all three of them drew a lot on their own um exp- their own lives didn't they mm. to, for their books um you've mentioned Jane Eyre um what about you know because there's, there's like you said there's a, there's a lot of romance um in the books but um it was only Charlotte who actually married yeah. um so I mean where were they getting this inspiration from <laughs> you mean where were they getting the romance well yeah it's just, it was just that, yes. I mean they're so powerful the books and you think you know there must be some sort of inspiration something that was yes you know, well, exactly, them. because something like Wuthering Heights, which, you know, a lot of people, if they're asked to say, what's the most romantic novel mm. ever? A lot of people would say Wuthering Heights. Yeah. And yet it's a really weird novel in terms of the sort of erotics of it. I mean, you know, you can hardly say that Cathy and Heathcliff are the ideal couple, you know, because so, no, it's, it's so violent. It's very destructive, I mean, yeah. Yes, it, it, I mean, they have a soulmate, you know, they, they have this feeling of, of being of one and the same person, basically. But it's not a conventional love story by no, any means no. it's actually a very brutal and unpleasant book um it's very you know it's a huge amount of of actual physical brutality and i mean heathcliff is hardly a delightful character he's not your classic hero is he not at in, all no. no and he's not meant to be particularly gorgeous i mean he's always made into something of a hunk in film versions <laughs> but like mr rochester is also meant to be quite uh, sort of choleric and a bit short and strange. Mm. You know, they're not they're not the typical no. romantic heroes, but they they feed through to readers as the epitomes of of romance, yeah. and it, it is quite peculiar. But, but the energy in those books is that of of a sort of massive, you know, uh, erotic understanding. And and as you say, well, where did this come from? It doesn't seem to have been practical experience <laughs> no. but, I mean imaginative you know I mean just a, a sort of immense rushing towards those ideas and, and the Bronte sisters had no um senses a sense of of what was or wasn't delicate to think about or to write about they just they had this untrammeled energy that um you know there was nothing uh inappropriate about what they wrote it just wasn't it wasn't contained within 
ordinary love story parameters at all. And that's what makes it so, you know, it just sets everybody on fire. It's, it's, it's incontinent. It's, it's wonderful. You can, you can walk around and you can go actually go into the rooms mm. that, that obviously the family used. Um, and I believe Charlotte's desk, her writing desk is now back. Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the place is absolutely full. It's a mm. really haunted house. It's the most, I think it's the most powerfully moving writer's house museum anywhere. I mean, I've been to a lot of them. And, but this has been, you know, it's where so, so much happened. And it's so present because they were in, you know, they, they were an indoorsy family and yes. they were very much a unit. It really contains, I mean, the building contains that sense of their closeness and their interdependence. And there are so many objects that have survived. I mean, clothes, items of furniture, you know, manuscripts, obviously, paintings. All the siblings were, were very adept draftsmen and women. And um, Branwell was, you know, a professional painter or wished to be. Yeah. Um, but they were all very, you know, so the walls are full of their, their drawings and paintings. And it's, 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 a really, it's, it's a really powerfully exciting place to be. Yeah, very yeah, I mean, so what was the actual process of their writing? Did they write as a group? Did they sort of, were they discussing their work as they were writing and getting, you know, feedback mm. and things like that? It's a bit hard to tell because Mrs Gaskell wanted to know about that, she being a novelist herself and mm. a friend of Charlotte Bronte, who was then becoming the biographer. And she was fascinated by the whole interaction of the sisters and, and how they'd um, managed to produce their works and uh, one of uh, well several people including Charlotte told her the story of how the sisters used to walk round and round the dining table in the sitting room here at night in the evening rather when their father had gone to bed mm. the father was a man of very uh, regular habits and he always went to bed at nine o'clock <laughs> would go up the stairs wind the clock on the half landing um, and you know say good night children and that's the point at which they really were free to pace round and round it was like a sort of um uh, you know pedestrian mantra thing they could walk around and around they didn't have to look at each other in the face they mm. could talk and move and discuss things and it's not clear whether they really well they obviously read each other the works in progress but charlotte specifically says that um what her sisters told her about jane eyre um she didn't really pay any she didn't change anything in the book because of it i mean she took on board their reactions yeah. but she didn't uh, adjust her writing accordingly so it was more of a of a sort of sharing than a than a collaboration I mean, yeah. it was more of a you know keeping up with each other and there had been some years when they when they were each going out and doing these various jobs when they hadn't had the chance to to keep abreast of each other's progress and that's why it was so surprising to Charlotte in 1845 when she came across some of Emily's poems, sort of by accident, she said. I mean, she was, I don't know what she was looking for, but in, no. in Emily's things, she found these poems that she was just so taken aback by the, the improvement in quality. I mean, the Emily's poems that she'd always known were good were suddenly astonishing, you know, just, and, and that's what motivated Charlotte to get the book of poems into print because she felt this kind of duty to getting Emily read. Mm, yeah. Um, Emily died first. Did she was it was Branwell it? died first. Branwell, actually, yes. yes. Um, out of the sisters, was yes, it? Em it yes, was Emily. Yeah. Um, what sort of impact do you think that had on the on the remaining two and the rest of the family? Really? Oh, it's absolutely terrible because I mean, the, it, within nine months, the three siblings, Branwell first, and then Emily, and then Anne, all mm. died. And uh, Branwell's death was something that was obviously shattering, but because he'd been for several years in this kind of decline due to alcoholism and opium addiction, it was not such a surprising no. and, and abrupt and appalling death as that of Emily and Anne, who um, seemed to have died from consumption that uh, sort of came on rather rapidly. In Emily's case, I mean, mm. she sort of galloped away in the winter of 1848, and you know, she was dead very, very quickly. She had a cough at Branwell's funeral in September and she was dead before Christmas. Um, and so that was appallingly, uh, I mean, it's terrible bereavement for Charlotte, who was only just, she wasn't getting over Branwell, but she was sort of stunned by the whole Branwell decline mm -hmm. experience. And then Anne, again, in that very winter, started to show signs of consumption. Um, Anne was prepared to go through all the available treatments because Emily had not 
accepted any treatment or whatever. Emily had been absolutely intransigent about having any doctors near her. Um, a very cruel thing to do, really, in, to one's loved ones, is mm. not to let them get anybody to help. It, it does seem that Emily was um, sort of fatalistic about her chances of recovering and not wanting to have any sort of interference and wanting to have a sort of intensity of life, even if it's very short. So she didn't want to be fiddled with and... No. and uh, but, but then, the, you know, on the day that she died, like two hours before she died, she said, I think I'll see the doctor now. You know, obviously it's way too late. Yeah. Um, but there was a sort of... Uh, well, you can't call it stubbornness. It goes so far beyond stubbornness, but a sort of um, mental... Just a tunnelling, a tunnel vision. She, was, she does display a lot of sort of Asperger's-y mm. traits, Emily Bronte. Um, you know, with the sort of genius uh, that she had, but also this, um, uh, you know, very difficult temperament. I mean, really, uh, a really unbending sort of temperament. And clearly it sort of intimidated everybody around her, even people she loved most. Mm. They were slightly frightened of her, I think. Um, but anyway, poor Emily um, died that winter. And then Anne, although she did all the, you know, she saw every doctor that was available, she attempted to get to a warmer climate in, in order, which would have helped her a bit. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, she died in Scarborough in May of 1849. And then Charlotte was, you know, completely bereaved. Just the, the silence and the emptiness of the house, um, really just terrible for Charlotte. I mean, dreadful um, sort of emptying out of all the stuff that had supported her before. So it was just her, it was just Patrick and Charlotte left here. Yes, and the, and, uh, the servant Martha Brown yeah. and Tabby, the old servant, who was actually too ill to be much use of as, as a servant at that date. Yeah. But um, yes, it's very, very quiet. And of course, Charlotte didn't really see anybody much. I mean, she didn't have um, many friends in the area at all. No. Did she marry after her sibling's death? Yes, she did. Um, uh, I mean, how does she? How does she meet? It, it, it was um, I can't remember his name now. Arthur Nichols. That's right. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, had she known him long? Well, he was the curate here, so she'd known him since 1845 when he came to Howarth as her father's curate. Mm. So Arthur Nichols had been, um, you know, not actually attended to very much by Charlotte. I mean, she sort of was a bit rude about the curates always, and she <laughs> did, obviously didn't particularly hadn't taken to him particularly. She she quite liked him, but there was no passion for no. Arthur Nichols I think one can say before or after much I mean she she became very affectionate towards him after they'd married mm. but it was after they'd married <laughs> so yeah. it's it's an extraordinary match for her to have made because here's somebody who'd invented Mr Rochester who'd invented Paul Emmanuel in Villette you know um, and the Moore brothers in Shirley and and she had all these incredible sort of heartthrob romances going on in her books and she ends up marrying somebody that she just about liked enough but felt no really strong feeling for emotions for so it's very very peculiar I think what was going on was this some kind of terrible masochism or you know was she so despairing that she felt she had to was it just loneliness you know totally loneliness I I mean the, the fact that Nichols had been you know, he was a very known quantity. He'd been here since, as I say, since 1845. She knew that he was steady. You know, he wasn't um, in any way, you know, sort of uh, vicious or no. or lazy or anything. He, he was a very good curate in terms of he did his job. He alleviated her father's workload and she was very concerned about what was good for her father at that date. Mm. And he'd also, he'd known her sister's, not intimately, but he, you know, she knew that he knew the whole story there. He'd known about Branwell and Branwell's sinking into this terrible yeah. sort of dissipation. So she didn't need to explain anything about the family circumstances. He'd been a, a, a sort of bystander and an observer. So he was he was like a sort of cousin or a, you know. That's was comfortable. A, yes, yeah. absolutely. There was a familiarity about him. He was a very decent man. Uh, you know, he he was very private. Uh, he wasn't going to go around showing off about her works or anything. In fact, quite the contrary. He rather wanted them to be made less of, you know, so they could have a quiet life. Yeah. Um, and he he did a lot, you know, in the parish, 
her father had relied on him a lot to begin with, hated him as soon as he proposed to Charlotte. But then he, then her, Reverend Bronte got used to Nichols, and actually, after Charlotte's death, they became very fond of each other. Yeah. So that was that was a good outcome. I mean, that was um, that was you know, you can see why Charlotte chose to do that. Yeah, and it it really did save her from the worst sort of loneliness and solitude. But of course, it also precipitated her death because mm. what she died from was a, a complication of pregnancy. Quite early on, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, very mm. early on. She'd only been married, well, she was married in the uh, June of the previous year and she died in March of 1855. She was probably about three months pregnant. That was Claire Harmon and Charlotte Hodgman. Claire's book, Charlotte Bronte, A Life, will be published later this month in the UK by Viking. In the US, it's due to be published next spring. And you can read more from Charlotte and Claire in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is now on sale. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time, when we'll be joined by Dan Jones and Helen Castor to talk about a pivotal year in the history of medieval England. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>